0: One of my favorite diversions in life is whitewater canoeing. And one of the things you learn to appreciate when you're in a river is its power. It can move you along at great velocity, or it can kill you. And so you have to learn to cooperate with the river. In fact, the first and foremost principle you learn if you're in a whitewater river is don't put your foot down. Because if you put your foot down, the river will lay you down and drown you. If you keep your feet up, you'll go far. And I think that same principle applies in the spiritual realm as well. God has empowered us with His Holy Spirit. In fact, in John chapter 7 and verse 38, Jesus referred to Him as rivers of living water. The power of the Spirit of God is within us. And we have to learn the principle, don't put your foot down. Get in God's way and dig in your feet and he'll run over you. But get in God's way and pick your feet up and you'll go far. That's the lesson that the early church had to learn in Acts chapter 11. Because as we come to chapter 11, the church has been in existence for an estimated 13 years. In that time, great things have been accomplished through the apostles. Thousands of people have been saved. Incredible miracles have occurred. They've expanded to Judea. They've expanded to Samaria. But now they've hit a snag. Jesus said in Acts 1:8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. The apostles apparently thought that meant to go everywhere looking for Jews only. But as we saw last week, God is now moving beyond their boundaries. And he's reaching out to the Gentiles. And the initial reaction of the early church was to put their foot down. That's what Peter did in chapter 10 and verse 14 when three times he said, No, Lord. And he had to learn the lesson to pick his feet up and be carried along by God. In fact, he expresses that to us in chapter 11 and verse 17. At the end of that verse, he says, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? If I get in God's way and try to stand there, I'll get run over. If I get in God's way and pick my feet up, I'll go far. And this morning, we're going to see how the church of Jerusalem learned that lesson, how they learned to pick up their feet and enjoy the ride. And they learned that lesson in a progression of four stages. Number one, accepting the Gentiles. Number two, reaching the Gentiles. Number three, encouraging the Gentiles. And number four, fellowshipping with the Gentiles. First of all, accepting the Gentiles in verses 1 to 18. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. The news that the Gospel had gone to the Gentiles was like hot gossip. All the believers throughout Judea heard about it. In fact, it reached Jerusalem before Peter did because chapter 10 and verse 48 tells us that he hung around Caesarea for a few days. Verse 2, and when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Now that phrase, those who were circumcised, is a reference to believing Jews. It's used that same way in chapter 10 and verse 45 to describe the Jewish believers who went to Caesarea with Peter. So those who were circumcised would really include everyone in the church at Jerusalem. And so Peter gets back to Jerusalem. He's got exciting stories to tell. He's seen a lame man healed. He's seen a revival break out. He's seen a lady rise from the dead. He's seen a vision from the Lord. But they don't want to hear any of these exciting things from Peter. They take issue with him. They put their foot down. Verse 3, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. See, they can't see beyond the fact that Peter has broken the ceremonial law and they're outraged. Peter, how could you go to their house? And how could you eat with them? This is inexcusable. Verse 4, But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, Now the nature of Peter's answer shows us two things. Number one, it shows us the wisdom of Peter. Peter doesn't get in a heated debate with them. Peter doesn't rebuke their prejudice. Instead, he simply recounts the details of the Gentiles' conversion. Peter simply says, I picked my feet up, and this is where God took me. You know, it's hard to argue with what God has done. And so Peter just says, here it is. Here's what God accomplished. And then secondly, it shows us the significance of this event. Because Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has just spent an entire chapter describing this event. Now he's going to spend another half a chapter giving us Peter's rendition of it. And you read through this and you think this is getting kind of monotonous. Why the repetition? Well, I think the answer is because of the significance of of this event. You see, God wanted the Jewish believers to understand that Christianity was not merely a modification of Judaism. God was not just simply taking Judaism and tweaking it a little bit. He was creating an altogether new entity in which Jew and Gentile were one in Jesus Christ and where Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish proselytes to get in, and where Jews didn't have to keep the ceremonial law in order to stay away from the Gentiles. And so Peter relays this story, and in doing so, he emphasizes five witnesses of what God did. The first witness is Peter himself. Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment three men appeared before the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. Peter says, You want to know why I went to the house of a Gentile? and ate with a Gentile? The answer is, the Lord gave me a vision. And in that vision, He told me in verse 12 to go. He told me in verse 7 to eat. So the first witness is Peter himself. The second witness is the six Jewish believers who were with him. Notice the end of verse 12. And these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. These six... Jewish believers that went with Peter to Caesarea, he is now brought with him to Jerusalem because he's not stupid. These guys saw it too. He brings them along. They are his witnesses. And so witness number one is Peter. Witness number two, these six believers. Witness number three is the angel, verse 13. And he, Cornelius, reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And here he conveys that the angel appeared to Cornelius and told him to send for Peter, witness number 3. And then witness number 4 is the Holy Spirit, verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. Peter says, all I did was went into their house and began to preach. And the Holy Spirit confirmed what was happening because He fell upon these believers. And notice he says He fell upon them just the way He fell upon those at Jerusalem 13 years ago in just the same way. That probably tells us that the same phenomena were related to it. The tongues of fire, speaking with tongues, the same phenomena, the same way it happened on the day of Pentecost. And then the fifth witness is Jesus himself, verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter says this is simply a part of Jesus' promise. This is phase three of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. It happened to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And now it happens to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Verse 17, If God therefore gave to them the same gift as He gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand In God's way. God was doing the same thing for the Gentiles he did for us. Same promise, same gift, same spirit, same baptism, same body. Peter says, who was I to put my foot down? Verse 18. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Those in the church of Jerusalem said... We better stop digging our heels in because obviously God is giving the gift of eternal life to the Gentiles. And so they accepted them. Stage one of their lesson, accepting the Gentiles. Stage two is reaching the Gentiles, verses 19 to 21. Notice verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, some Bible teachers think that this verse is a flashback. That Luke is taking us back about ten years to the persecution that happened with Stephen and what occurred at that point in time. Um, personally, I don't read it that way. If you go back to chapter 8 and verse 1, we have the reference that he's talking about. Chapter 8 and verse 1 says, On that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, here's the persecution of Stephen. It resulted in a scattering throughout... Judea and Samaria. If you come to chapter 11 and verse 1 that we read earlier, it says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. They had been scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. In chapter 11, we find that they are now dispersed throughout Judea. And then we come to verse 19 of chapter 11, and it says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia. I think what it's saying here is that they were, they were persecuted 10 years previous to this. They are now scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But now at this point in time, they move on to Phoenicia and to these other places. And so this is not going back 10 years to tell us what's happening. What it's talking about is an expansion that goes on from this point. And the reason I make that point is because if this happened before the conversion of Cornelius, then you have some difficult questions to answer. Problem number one is in verse 21, where it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now that's talking about Gentiles. So if this is a flashback, and we're going back ten years, then he's saying that a great number of Gentiles got saved Ten years before the Spirit came on the Gentiles. So what are you going to do with these guys that were saved ten years before? Are they going to just stay in limbo for ten years until the Spirit comes at the house of Cornelius? I don't think so. Second problem you have is in verse 22. Verse 22 says, "...and the the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch." Now, if this happened ten years before the first part of chapter 11... This is a strange reaction of the church of Jerusalem because they hear about all these Gentiles being saved. Why don't they react like they did in verse 2 of this chapter and be appalled and dig their feet in? The answer is because they've already heard about the salvation of Cornelius and the Gentiles and now they're accepting of what happens in these other places. In fact, I think verse 19 really kind of spurs on Uh, What happens here, it says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen, because they heard about what happened in the house of Cornelius, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, Phoenicia was the coastal region just north of Judea. It had the familiar cities of Tyre and Sidon in it. Cyprus was a major island about 60 miles off the coast of Phoenicia in the Mediterranean. And then if you took a trip about 200 miles north of Sidon along the coastline, you came to this city known as Antioch. Now, there were about 16 Antiochs in the ancient world. But this was the greatest one. It was the capital of Syria. It boasted a population of over half a million people. In fact, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, surpassed in population only by Rome and Alexandria. It was founded in 300 B.C. by Seleucus I, named after his father. It was a commercial center, a political center, a pagan religious center, known for its worship of Apollo and Artemis. It was referred to as the Queen of the East, Antioch the Beautiful, Antioch the Great. In fact, its walls enclosed more area than the city of Rome. Its main street was four miles long and was paved with polished stone and lined on each side with marble colonnades. It was the only city in the ancient world at this time that had streets lighted at night. And so when we read about Antioch here, this was not some small little out-of-the-way place. And when these first Christian missionaries arrived there, they used two approaches Approach number one is in verse 19. It says at the end they came speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Now isn't that typical? Verse 18, they find out that the Gentiles get saved. It says they glorify God. Praise God the Gentiles are being saved. Verse 19, their response is they preached to Jews only. What's that tell us? What you know doesn't always translate into what you do. Sometimes we say, well, I'm open-minded. I'm not prejudiced. But our actions say otherwise. Though these Jewish believers knew that the door was open to the Gentiles, they said, I'm not going through that door. But then there was a second approach, and that's in verse 20. But there were some of them Men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, speaking to the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Some went beyond just accepting the Gentiles and they began to reach out to them. And these were men, we're told, from Cyprus and Cyrene. That would make them Hellenistic Jews. They were born and raised outside of Judea. They were raised in predominantly Gentile areas. They spoke the native Gentile language. And so they were the ones to take the gospel to these Gentiles. Now, you know, they could have come up with some pretty good excuses. They could have said, nobody else is preaching to the Gentiles. They could have said, you know, the apostles in the 13 years I've heard them teach, never told us to go to the Gentiles. They always told us, stick to the Jews. And even though now they're saying it's okay, I don't see them doing it. But you know, I really like these guys. Because we often say, a church never rises above the spiritual level of its leaders. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But here's some fellows who rose above the spiritual level of their leaders. When we come to the book of Acts, we usually highlight the Bereans in, in, in chapter 17 because they were the fellows who went home when they heard Paul preach and studied the Scriptures to see if these things were so. They tested their teachers. These guys are more impressive to me because they not only tested their, their teachers, they went beyond them in their understanding and application of the truth of God. They said, God is going to the Gentiles. We're going to pick up our feet and we're going to go there as well. Impressive individuals. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. What happens when you pick your feet up? You go far. And here it says they, they pick their feet up, and what happens? The hand of the Lord was with them. God was moving upon them. And great things happened. It says a large number was saved. In fact, I want you to notice how Luke phrases this at the end of verse 21. He says, those who believed turned to the Lord. Believing and repentance are inseparable. They believed and they turned from sin to the Lord. Luke says that same thing at the end of verse 18. He speaks about the repentance that leads to life. Repentance and faith are inseparable. So stage two is not initiated by many, only some, but it's reaching the Gentiles. And then the third stage of this lesson is encouraging the Gentiles in verses 22 to 26. And the news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now this time... When the church of Jerusalem hears that the Gentiles have been saved, the reaction is quite different. Rather than taking issue with them, they send Barnabas. Now, why do they send Barnabas? Or maybe better yet, why did they send anybody? Why did they think that they needed to send somebody off to Antioch? It seemed like Antioch was doing pretty good on their own. Some suggest that the reason they sent Barnabas up there was to see if The Holy Spirit had fallen upon these Gentiles. But see, that question's already been answered in verse 15. And if that was their concern, I'm sure that they would have sent an apostle up there like they did to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Instead, they send Barnabas. I think the reason they send someone up there is for two other reasons. Number one is to facilitate unity. The new church in Antioch was going to be isolated. By its location, it was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And by its culture, it was a Gentile congregation. And so the church at Jerusalem wants to extend the hand of unity to these Gentiles. So first of all, to facilitate unity, but I think secondly, to encourage them. You know, when the church at Jerusalem was born, it had a great advantage. It had 12 apostles right there to teach them. The church at Antioch doesn't have that luxury. And so what the church of Jerusalem does is that they send someone up there to teach and encourage this new Gentile church. And so Barnabas is like a gift from the church at Jerusalem. He's not going there so much to rule. He's going there to serve. Now let me ask a second question. Why Barnabas? Why not one of the apostles? Why not somebody else? Why Barnabas? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, his culture. Acts 4, 36 tells us that Barnabas was born in Cyprus. And so unlike the apostles who were native Hebrews, Barnabas was a Hellenistic Jew. He could relate to the Gentiles. He could speak their language. He was from the same place as the founders of this church, and so he wouldn't be perceived as an outsider coming in. First reason, his culture. Second reason, his character Look at verse 24. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. That's the same kind of endorsement Stephen got back in Acts chapter 6. Barnabas was a man of character. Now, why is that important? Well, because they knew that he wasn't going to go to Antioch and selfishly build his own little kingdom. He was a man of character that they could trust to send up there and do the will of God. You know, today we have a fixation on methods. When anybody's successful, we want to buy their book and copy their methods. But it's interesting to me on this occasion that Luke doesn't mention the methods of Barnabas. He only mentions his character. Because who a man is determines what he does. And we need more men of character and less men of technique there will always be a shortage of people who are good full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith like Barnabas third reason his qualifications if they were going to send anybody to Antioch to encourage these new believers who would be better qualified than Barnabas He was the kind of guy that encouraged everybody. He was like a spiritual breath of fresh air. Acts chapter 4 and verse 36 tells us that the apostles found him so encouraging that they changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And so Barnabas was the best man for the job because of his culture, his character, and his qualifications. And then verse 23... When he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. When he witnessed the grace of God. Now, the grace of God is invisible, isn't it? So how do you see the grace of God? Well, you see it by the way it transforms life. It turns pride into humility. It turns takers into givers. It turns mockers into worshipers. And Barnabas came here and he heard the testimonies of these people and he saw their changed lives and he did two things. Number one, he rejoiced. Other Jewish believers might have been upset by the sight of these Gentile believers. But see, Barnabas wasn't looking at their nationality. Barnabas wasn't looking at their skin color. Barnabas wasn't looking at their differences. He was looking at the grace of God. And the grace of God, wherever it manifests itself, brings joy. And so he rejoiced. And then secondly, he encouraged them. In Acts 43, Paul and Barnabas exhorted new believers to continue in the grace of God. In Acts 14.22, they exhorted new believers to continue in the faith. Here, Barnabas encourages them to remain true to the Lord. Literally, to purpose with all their heart to cling to the Lord. Barnabas is not expecting them to be passive. He's challenging them to embrace the Lord with every bit of their heart. And Barnabas's work in Antioch brought two results. Number one, more people. The end of verse 24 says, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now the growth of the church of Antioch is mentioned twice in this text. In verse 21 it's mentioned. There it was due to an emphasis on evangelism. And then again, it's mentioned in verse 24, and here it's due to an emphasis on edification. As Barnabas exhorted the new believers and they grew in their faith, they began to live out their faith and share it with others, and the result was more people. Second result was more help. Verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. The number of new believers was growing beyond Barnabas' ability to minister to them, and so he goes to Tarsus in search of Saul. Now, why Saul? Well, if you remember back in chapter 9 and verse 27, Barnabas is the one who brought Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem. And I'm sure that on that occasion, Saul conveyed to Barnabas that God had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so Barnabas says, I got a lot of Gentiles here. I can't handle them all. Who's the best man for the job? And it's Saul. And that tells us something about Barnabas. Because he had to know Saul well enough by now to know that if he brought Saul in, he was soon going to kind of rise to the top and become the leader. And that's why I like this about Barnabas. Barnabas didn't say, well, I better not go get Saul because there might be some competition. See, his thinking was, if I get Saul, there will be some completion to this ministry. Because his concern was not his own interest. His concern was the interest of the new believers in Antioch. And so he says, I'm going to go get Saul, and I'm going to bring him in here, even if I fade into the background, because my goal is to see these people become Christ-like. Now, finding Saul was no easy task because the phrase in verse 25, to look for, means diligent searching. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 2 when it says there that Joseph and Mary misplaced Jesus on their way home from Jerusalem and they went back and diligently searched for Him. So on this occasion, Barnabas diligently searches for Saul. Why is Saul so hard to find? Well, several years have passed since Acts chapter 9 and verse 30 when he fled Jerusalem and went home to Tarsus. A good estimate would be seven years. But there's another reason. Paul would later say in Philippians 3.8, I have suffered the loss of all things. And that all things probably included his family. The indication is that Saul had been disinherited by his Jewish parents for his Christian beliefs. And so Barnabas couldn't just go to Tarsus and knock on the door of Saul's parents' home and find him. He had been disinherited. And so he had to go and search for Saul diligently. And eventually he found him, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. What did they do for an entire year? They taught the believers. The apostles had made it clear in Acts chapter 6 that teaching the Word is the highest priority of church leaders. And that's what they did. And apparently they did a pretty good job. Because when we get over to Acts chapter 13, we find there a group of solid leaders in this church at Antioch. Due in large part, I think, to their emphasis upon teaching the Word. And then the last phrase in verse 26 says, And the disciples were first called Christians... Antioch. That word Christian means those who belong to Christ. And I'd like you to notice a couple things about this. Number one, it was not the disciples who named themselves Christians. It was the world around them that called them this. They lived out the life of Christ. It was evident that they belonged to Him. And the world around them says, those guys belong to Christ. I trust that those around you are saying the same kind of thing. It's obvious that that person belongs to Christ. Second thing I'd like you to note here is that this was a term of derision. This was said about the the believers really in an air of contempt. It was kind of like the phrase we heard several years ago, you're a Jesus freak. It was a negative term. In fact, it's used here in fact, it's only used three times in the New Testament, which may surprise you. It's, it's used here. It's used in Acts 26, 28, where King Agrippa says rather sarcastically, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And it's used one other time by Peter in 1 Peter 4:16, where he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. In that name that people use against you in a derogatory way, let him glorify God. And so this name that was originally intended to be a term of derision became a badge of honor for the early church. And these Gentile believers in Antioch were the first to wear it. And so stage three of the lesson for the church of Jerusalem was fitting It was encouraging the Gentiles, which brings us to the fourth and final stage, and that is fellowshipping with the Gentiles in verses 27 to 30. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Several prophets came from Jerusalem. One is singled out by the name of Agabus. He will resurface in Acts chapter 21. He stands up in Antioch and he prophesies that there will be a great famine. And Luke adds that this happened during the reign of Claudius. Claudius reigned from 41 to 54 A.D. And ancient writers mention at least four famines in that time period. Two in Rome, one in Greece, one in Judea. And the one in Judea was especially severe. The Jewish historian Josephus records that many people died for a lack of money to buy food. Now, what's interesting to me here is that Agabus tells them this is going to happen. He doesn't tell them what they ought to do about this upcoming famine. Now, the temptation would be to use this information for your own gain. If you knew there was going to be a famine, you can invest in the right things and make a lot of money. The other temptation would be to look out for themselves. Because he says this is going to be a famine all over the world. So you would think their initial reaction would be, yikes, we, we better hoard up some money for ourselves. But what do they do? Verse 29. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means... Each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Their first thought was, there's going to be a famine. This is going to be really hard on the saints in Judea because many of them have already sold their possessions to give to the needs of others. And because of the persecution there, they've lost a lot that they had. And so they decide they're going to take up a contribution and they're going to send it to the believers in Judea. That expresses the true purpose of prophecy. It's not to stir up our curiosity about the future. It's to stir up our hearts to do the will of God. Verse 30, And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. They sent it in charge of these two key leaders, and though it was directed generally to the believers in Judea, we find out in Acts 12, 25 that they went specifically to Jerusalem. Now let me add a little footnote here. This is the first use of the word elders in the book of Acts to refer to church leaders. It's used a few times to speak of the leaders in Judea, but this, or in Judaism, but here it's referring to the church. And it indicates to us really a growing shift in the leadership of the Jerusalem church. In Acts chapter 8, we're told that it it was the apostles who sent Peter and John to Samaria. Here in verse 22, it says that the church heard about the Gentiles being saved and the church sent Barnabas to Antioch. And now it says this contribution is being sent to the elders. We'll see more about that transition in the government of the church later in the book of Acts. But what I want you to see here is how these two churches had fellowship with each other. Fellowship means to share in common with. When it came to spiritual leadership, the fledgling church at Antioch was poor. The church at Jerusalem was rich in spiritual leadership. And so what did they do? They gave them Barnabas. When it came to material things, a famine was coming. The church at Jerusalem was poor The church at Antioch had plenty, and so what did they do? They gave a contribution. You see, that's fellowship. They were sharing in common with each other. And that's the final stage of the lesson God wanted the saints in Jerusalem to learn, fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And so God is teaching the church at Jerusalem a lesson here. The lesson simply is, don't put your foot down. Get in God's way and get your feet up and you'll go far. In this case, they went farther than they ever dreamed all the way to the Gentiles, accepting them, reaching them, encouraging them, and fellowshipping with them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that shows us how Christian people who have accomplished much for you can still have a lot to learn. And Father, as we apply that to our lives today, we realize that even though we may have grown a lot, and even though you may have used us in some significant ways, your ways are still beyond our ways. And Father, we want to be sensitive, be used by you in the power of your Spirit. And Father, forgive us for the times when we have put our foot down and stopped you from doing the things through us that you wanted to accomplish. And Father, I pray that we might truly learn from this example this morning to lift our feet and go in the power of the Spirit of God and accomplish those things that you have designed for us to do. And Father, in the process, we'll be careful to give you all the glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name.